the 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 0111911. KVC. Good afternoon, everyone. Jeanette Trumpeter filling in for Dave Congleton, who is taking a well-earned vacation and is crazy enough to trust me to take over the mic for a day. And I am just so happy to be here uh, interviewing people that I'm a super fan of. And so we had Sister Teresa Harpin from Restorative Partners in our last hour, four o'clock hour. I am joined by a woman that I just got to know recently, Becky Kripe, is a paralegal with the San Luis Obispo County District Attorney's Office, and I have been very familiar with the Kristen Smart case over the years, uh, the Cal Poly woman that disappeared in the 90s, and for 26 years, uh, her case kind of went cold, and last year uh, was... The, the man convicted of her murder or the man accused of her murder was convicted of her disappearance and her murder. Her body has never been located. But there has been so much interest in this case. There has been the wonderful Your Own Backyard podcast, um, numerous articles, specials on national TV. I've watched them all. And I've talked to many of the people in the case but I never knew what went on behind the scenes during the court case. And it has been fascinating getting to know Becky Kripe and the part she played in the prosecution of Paul Flores. So first of all, Becky, thank you for coming in and joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, Jeanette. I'm excited to be here and glad to talk to you about the case and whatever else you want to talk about. Yeah, who knows where it'll go. (laughs) Uh, If you have any questions during the during this hour, you can text us at 805-543-8830 or just call the same number, 805-543-8830. But we want to start with exactly what your role was when this went down. And let's remember, the prosecution of Paul Flores started when COVID was still going on. There were so many challenges, but Probably, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but one of the biggest biggest challenges is how many years of evidence you were in charge of organizing, correct? Yeah, yeah. It was a, a big ask. We had met in um, March of 2021 to review uh, a lot of what the sheriff sheriff's office had um, digitally and then we were uh, tasked with I was tasked with ordering that uh, copy of all that discovery um, and evidence from them and then reaching out to all the neighboring agencies in the county uh, and seeing what they had if anything and um, elsewhere right we had Southern California FBI right Uh, many hands involved like you said over over 25 years so I think that was one of the challenges was how do you organize and keep track of 
everything from all the various agencies and their responses and just the sheer mass of evidence that the sheriff's office had. And then you had to um, digitalize this, right? And to, and talk to me, it was like so many gigabytes of... Yeah, it was 1.5 terabytes of terabytes. evidence. Yeah, from paper to there were VHS tapes that had to be converted. There were uh, cassette tapes. So because you're talking about, you know, old digital, uh, of course. Um, and so, yeah, it had to be converted and then put into a, a current digital format so we could discover it to defense. And then ultimately, a lot of that evidence would be presented at, at trial. So. so explain to me the importance of, of why, of the challenges of what you did. You are basically the backup of our lead prosecutor, Chris Pavel. Um he explain because I was I sat and I, I was lucky enough or if that's the right term I was able to get into the courtroom and listen to much of this trial and it was only afterwards that I heard what was happening <laughs> behind the scenes in the scramble so explain the importance of how you organized this more than a terabyte of evidence yeah, so it had to be systematic to where when he viewed it, it was understandable. If I was organizing it a certain way, it wouldn't be accessible to him. So coordinating with JT, and so everyone and JT could, is the investigator, he's the, yeah, JT. the DAI investigator um, on the case, and so. We all had to have our hands in it, so to speak, and so um, compiling it digitally and, and making those folders and, and being able to find, readily find that evidence was critical, obviously. And yes, I I felt like his shadow, and when I texted or called, he always came running. He, he's a great attorney, and I, I put a lot of ask on him because... And he, we're talking about Chris. <laughs> Chris, yeah, the DDA for the case, and he often called called it the Becky show because it was all about the evidence and that's what I was tasked to do was order, organize it, get out to defense and make sure it was clear, concise and readily available and ready to go in whatever fashion we needed it to go in. So it was it was very stressful and he was so great to work with because his personality and demeanor was such that it was um he was very humble, but, um, you know, very concise and, and considerate and in what he was asking and was um, readily available to me because I was texting and calling at all hours. Um, and when I couldn't get a hold of him, I would just write it down. And so we were in constant communication and that helped in um, the it helped in the organization of the evidence because he was right there with me, so to speak, as we were doing it. So we we were able to coordinate with everything and, and organize it exactly how it needed to be. And to those of us who may be familiar to some degree with criminal cases, but not the law behind it, and maybe attorneys know this, I don't know. I was fascinated with how all that work you did up to it during the trial when a challenge comes from the other side, you you literally were getting texts. When did we discover this? What time can you get it to me? Correct? Oh yeah, yeah. My our phones were fired up all the time. I kept a a discovery log of when we did hand things over to defense, what it was, how it went, and the the Bates number. We Bates numbered. Um, which is the, a filing system, correct? Right, yeah. through Adobe Acrobat um, to sig you know, signal when what the number was and when we had given it to defense. And that 
I lived in, <laughs> metaphorically, I lived in that discovery log that was open all the time. I was in there all the time. And yeah, just having to answer to Chris to say, okay, yes, it was given to him. This is when. And, and when you're talking about him, the opposing counsel would yes. say, we were, ne- we never received that. Yes. Correct. And yes. then you could say, many well, times. Yeah. Check that because yes. I have it right here. Yeah. And <laughs> that my happened, that happened during the preliminary hearing too, where they were like, hey, I'm not sure if we got this. And so oftentimes, we were rediscovering it, which is okay. If they want to have it two or three times, we'd rather have it, you know, have them have it duplicate than than not have it at all. But so the preliminary hearing is basically you present a little, a shorter version of your case to the judge um, to see if there's enough evidence to hold it over and let's go to a full blown trial. So the preliminary hearing was held here in San Luis Obispo County uh, at our county courthouse during still the thick of COVID, masks and everything in the courtroom. Um, And then it got a change of venue. Yes. So what did that do to your life? Oh, gosh. And I think think we were... We knew it was probably coming, so but when it happened, we were like, okay, here we go, because there's a lot of things that have to be lined up to be able to do that, and you're trying to get all your your legal aspects in order, but then you're talking about the logistics of, okay, well, where do we put everyone to stay, and what supplies are we bringing up? Who's where are we going to house and have like a, a mobile office? You know, all those things came into play. Logistics, logistics, right? In this, at the same time, we're trying to discover everything to defense and work the case and come together on the legal side. So, wow, <laughs> we're talking to Becky Cry, paralegal with the District Attorney's Office of San Luis Obispo County, and and reflecting back on the behind the scenes of the prosecution of Paul Flores for the murder of Kristen Smart. I'm Jeanette Trumpeter. You're listening to KVEC News Talk 920 AM, and we will be back after the break. KVEC 920 AM and 96.5 FM. You can listen on either channel. Jeanette Trumpeter filling in for a vacationing Dave Congleton. Here with Becky Kripe, a paralegal with the district attorney's office, who is behind the scenes of the Paul Flores prosecution. And I guess the focus of this is the logistics behind the prosecution of Paul Flores. And it was such a monumental task with the 26 years of evidence, the multiple jurisdictions. But then you throw in a gag order, COVID pandemic, and then historic rains and a change of venue. It was a logistical challenge, to say the least. And I got to know Becky working at the county after the trial um, and her and Eloisa Basinger. Am I saying her last uh-huh. name right? Yes. Yeah. She was the coordinator. You guys were, I think Chris called you the three-legged stool, and we're talking about Chris Pavel, the lead prosecutor in the case. You were the three-legged stool. Six-legged stool. Well, six-legged, right, because you <laughs> uh-huh. had JT Camp yep. and Chris Pavel. Mm-hmm. And Clint Cole was and in Clint there. And Clint Cole, uh-huh. the detective. Yes. And then these three behind the scenes, and it was a six-legged stool, and Chris said if one of those legs had broken, <laughs> I'm not sure we would have got the prosecution. Uh-huh. And it was I would agree so, with that. Such a task. Um, so 
Eloisa was the coordinator, booking hotels, car rentals. Oops, there's a storm. The airport's closed. Let's switch those. Yes, rebooking. Know, rebooking. Somebody got COVID. Now we have to change the order of the witnesses and do that. And then Beth is the victim witness coordinator. She was the, holding the hands advocate. and mm-hmm. hearts with the Smart family, which, yes. by the way, I've talked to Denise Smart, who calls you three angels behind Aww, the scenes. That's and, very and kind. all the work that you did to help the family navigate yeah. that because yes. everybody thinks they've seen law and order and they understand the criminal justice system and it's it's very a far cry from that yeah so we're talking with becky cribe today and hearing about the the logistics behind the prosecution of paul flores and the change of venue presented some pretty dramatic challenges for you so you get the notice that oh, okay we're going to monterey county which the courthouse is in salinas and you are effectively living there for how many months? Five, six months? Yeah, that was in March that the change of venue went through. And then we were scheduled to start trial um, June, early June. So we had just a few months to seal up um, what we needed to and, and continue to file what we were doing, discover evidence and so forth. But at the same time, coordinating, okay, upping and moving this whole uh, operation. You know, yeah, to uh, another county. So, um, yeah, we, we ended up, um, I, I moved up there May 31st and came back October 18th. Wow. So, yeah, that was the whole summer and then into the fall. So, so you're working. Yeah. Uh, you're living in a hotel. I assume you guys all stayed in a hotel. We did. We stayed in the same hotel, and we most of us went home on the weekends. I I think Chris and JT probably went home the least because they were just working all the time, yeah. a lot, a lot, a lot. And so, and then they gave you office space in the Monterey County Courthouse. How'd that work? They so the DA's office is adjacent to the Monterey Courthouse and they were um they are fabulous people. Big shout out to the Monterey DA's office. Ooh, um ooh, yeah. Monterey <laughs> County. Um they were so great. They uh lent us space there and made us feel like part of their family and um definitely connected with people there and will always, always be fond of their whole group. But yeah, they let us move all of our stuff in and offered their supplies and assistance. And we tried to be as self-sufficient as we could, but um, they were right there to assist um, with supplies or staff, whatever we needed. And so that was really, I think, helpful in what we were doing there too, for sure. Okay, but you're in a hotel, and then I heard stories of you know, <laughs> weddings on, you oh, know, gosh. happening. And, and here you have a big court case the next day. And, you're, and, and the days were, right, you were at... You were there at six o'clock in the morning because you had to be ready for the eight o'clock court case. Then at lunch, questions and find me this and explain what a day looked like for you. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Hotel living was very interesting. Um, So there were many times, although court started at 830, there were often times when the judge was, you know, it was 815 and she was walking in and checking in with both of the attorneys. So we would leave shortly after eight to go over and get started. So I couldn't show up at eight like I normally do here in San Luis Obispo. And so, and I had plenty of work to do and, and items to prepare and things to get ready for that day in court. And so my goal was to be there 
like around six. So sometimes I was there at five in the morning and Chris was already there Mm. um, tackling what he needed to do. And he had a list of things for me to do. So and then we would end court would end around four thirty and then we would go back to the DA's office and meet as a team. And by the time we were walking out of there, it was between five thirty and six. And it wasn't like, okay, now go enjoy your evening. (laughs) No, I mean, a lot of times JT and Chris were then um, speaking with witnesses for the next day or they were following up to conversations with um, staff down here in San Luis. Um, so they they worked even more than I did. And I would often get dinner and then go on the computer and finish up work that I needed to do. So they were easily 12-hour days. Sure. And, and I wonder, gosh, how did we do that? Uh, adrenaline. There was a lot of adrenaline. And you're just so invested in what you're doing. And you uh, it's not robotic. It was very much... Um, passion filled and so we were able to maintain that energy um for sure get, but, well and it was a team and chris yeah, has talked to me about that how a lot you, of support you did a check-in how you doing how's your family yes. because you missed soccer games you missed baseball games. you know everyone who had kids mm-hmm. you know away from away from home for weeks at a time yes and then you finally Get the work done, but you got to be up at four, but I'm just going to get a good night's sleep. And then, oh my gosh, yeah, there were two different weddings that summer, and I remember walking up to the hotel, and I had my briefcase and um, my things from the day, and I was obviously dressed business attire, so I wasn't, you know, a a guest that had just come off the beach in her flip-flops, and I remember in the front of the hotel were these, it must have been about 100 nicely dressed men in suits and tuxes. And I'm like, huh, what's going on here? Well, sure enough, that was a wedding and most of the women had been inside. But when I walked up, I'm like, is this like an addition for the bachelor? Or I was, I mean, it was crazy. So then obviously the wedding hadn't even started and we, I was just getting there at six and that went into like 11 ish and I, 11 PM. And I still had to get up, you know, at four, get yes. dressed, get my makeup on, that sort of thing. Um, I'm fire alarms. They had, had fire, fire alarms. alarms. Yeah. That was actually the day before, I believe the day before opening and it went off every two hours and every time it went off, they were wanting the guests to go down the stairs outside. Oh, I can't imagine <laughs> the nerves and the adrenaline of the opening statements and all you want is just give me a Some few sleep. hours sleep. Yeah, we didn't sleep a whole lot. We, yeah. <laughs> so that's one of the logistical nightmares behind this. Yes. And then there was, there were things, I mean, the fl- I couldn't believe it. Was it closing arguments or the verdict when the massive storm shut down 101? Was that the closing arguments? It was one of the big court uh, right. dates. I think, and then half I think the people right. couldn't mm-hmm. get the, I mean, yes. I remember. And there was delays. And some of the jurors had shown up uh, late. So mm-hmm. it, it, it went on and on. <laughs> and then we had some challenges within the courthouse, too. Real quick, we've got to get to break. But tell me real quick about this, the elevator going out and you guys having to carry these boxes oh, yeah. of files. That was, yes, that was opening day. Their elevator at the DA's office had been broken for a couple of weeks. And so we had to take all the boxes down and the dolly and reconstruct it and take it across to the courthouse. Yeah. So it was, yeah, we, we got through it, though. But definitely not without something pretty much every day. We, but we took it as it came. And, and like you said, as a team, we, we got through it, which was pivotal and very important. <laughs> it was just amazing to me hearing some of these stories after the fact and how cool and calm 
you cats were in court. So uh, <laughs> impressive. We'll hear more of the behind the scenes of the Paul Flores conviction in Monterey County in the Kristen Smart case from Becky Kripe, the paralegal with the San Luis Obispo County District Attorney's Office. After the break, you're listening to KVEC News Talk, 920 AM and 96.5 FM. KVEC. Four thirty four in the afternoon, Jeanette Trumpeter filling in for Dave Congleton. This afternoon on your hometown radio, joined by Becky Cripe, paralegal with the San Luis Obispo County District Attorney's Office. And Becky, I don't know if I told you, but we are recording. See that little GoPro right there? You we are did, doing a yes. video because <laughs> Greg's playing this music where we're we can't dancing. sit still. <laughs> uh, heading into the breaks. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for adding some levity to the afternoon there, Craig. Uh, we're talking about the prosecution of Paul Flores for the disappearance and murder of Kristen Smart, which was no easy undertaking. It started with so many challenges. Um, no body. Let's just start right there. So that that any murder prosecution without a body is harder is an uphill <laughs> battle right there. And then 26 years multiple mistakes uh, i'll just say it you don't have to of along the way multiple mistakes um and now we're going to try to prosecute paul flores and during a worldwide pandemic during torrential rains and during a change of venue and all under a gag order so before we get to the gag order because that that was challenging for all of you involved in the case um the the fact that there was this change of venue and you had the six-legged stool, meaning you, Eloisa Basinger, who was the coordinator, book and hotels and everything, Beth Robb, victim witness representative coordinator, and then Chris Pervell, the, the deputy district attorney, J.T. Camp, investigator, and the detective Clint Cole. If any one of you had caught a bad case of COVID or broken a leg or and and she just told me a story about the day that <laughs> that the sewer backed up in her hotel room and she's trying to get there by six o'clock you're up at three thirty, four o'clock trying to get ready and basically all they could give you was towels and there was no uh, there was no backup to call right explain what that felt like no i mean the the task at hand and the the items needed in court and the day was going to progress and um there wouldn't have been anyone there to do the job that i was you know called on to do so <clears throat> so when the sink was overflowing i you know you handle it the best you can and luckily staff came in and they were able to fix it when i was gone but <laughs> Uh, yeah, still had to get up, get dressed, and kind of move past that and Without get to a the courthouse. That you yeah. could really use because there's sewage <laughs> right. on the floor. Yes, yeah. So, <laughs> oh my gosh! Again, seeing you guys in court and and thinking about the logistics of what you dealt with behind the scenes um, was just mind blowing to me. 
the the gag order. I found it interesting. I know a lot of players in this in this case, and when I went to court, I was scared to look at anyone because you nobody wanted to be the person that messed this case up. Talk about that weight on your shoulders for five or six months. Oh, yeah. I mean, because everyone wants to talk to you. Everyone wants to know uh, what's next. How are you guys doing? Even even the slightest of conversation could lead into something that could, you know, derail what we were there to do. We knew the task um, at hand. And, and so I guess in a way it's it's for that reason that it's best to have a gag mm-hmm. order in place. But there were times, you know, one time I walked out and, you know, Denise was, Miss, Mrs. Smart was sitting on the bench and she goes, oh, goody, someone I can talk to. And I, I smiled oh. at her and I said, hello. And I said, I just, I can't, I'd love to talk to you. Yeah. I go, I just can't. Um, but we talked about her going to get lunch and how it was nice to see her and just had to, um, you're removing yourself. Uh, you know, and, and every time we'd walk out of the building, we were um, there were media everywhere. So they were taking right. pictures and, um, you know, uh, just people yeah, wanting to know. International attention yes. is not something we get a no. lot in court in San Luis Obispo County. Yeah. Um, and also, I found it fascinating that if you, you, you know, I'd go to the, the ladies restroom and there's six stalls or whatever in it. And. Uh, you go with a friend that you know, and the things that ladies do is they talk, you know, over the yes. wall to each other. But there's a juror. Correct. Three st- I mean, it literally was when you left the courtroom, it was best to not talk to anyone or, in my case, so paranoid, I didn't want to make eye can- contact with right. people. Right, right. Yeah. And we were of, you know, it was the same for us, too. And, you know, at that point, we were getting recognized. People knew who we were, obviously, in the courthouse, the DA's office. And so... Um, yeah, we we kept our cards close and just had to, yeah. Just, Which also means a little estrangement. I don't know if that's the right term. A little distance had to be there with your family, with your friends, right? Absolutely. You can't really For trust sure. anyone because people make mistakes yes. in repeating yes. information. Correct. Right? Yes. And whatever you had said, it could be misconstrued or relayed differently. So you just don't say anything you just and and as a team we would have conversations about it and um whatever challenges we were facing as far as that next day how we would handle hey if this comes up um you know with this witness or you know um so and so had called about this or or beth often would want to tell the family something and chris would have to say hey you know this is not something that um you know we need to share with them at this point uh you know this is something that we need to work through legally and you know we we always had to be on that okay is this something that they're entitled to know you know following marcy's rights and and just trying to be inclusive for them but understanding that there were things we couldn't tell them you know oh how difficult and i know Denise Smart, I talked to her after the verdict, and she said, um, who's the mother of Kristen, said, you know, we were starving. <laughs> like, please just tell us yes. something. Please can what, you know, and and there were times where they were frustrated with the lack sure. of communication. But she said in the end, it was the right thing to do. And we're grateful to them for, for following their conscience. What about the weight of did you did you know going in did you feel it going in the weight of the importance of this case and 
and what it meant to the family, to the community? Oh, sure. Because you're looking at something that um, happened so many years ago, we we never met um, the family prior to that, right? Okay. Um, we didn't know the victim. Um, but at the same time, it was still a victim. It's still a crime that happened. And something that negatively impacted a county, right? And mm-hmm. like you said before, ended up going nationally and internationally affecting people, there was a lot of weight to to make sure that we were following the law and doing what we could do to make sure that justice was served, um, however that was going to play out. Because at the time, you just never know. It's up to the jurors. It's, right. it's not up to us. But we had that duty to pull together everything we had and to present the best case to get the outcome that we were all hoping for. But it was... Yeah, a lot of pressure. We went to to bed with that pressure. We woke up with that pressure. Mm. And um, as as a team, I think it was important that we leaned on each other so that I mean, I often I often equated it to like Chris being we were all like on his shoulders, like he had the weight of the world on his shoulders, Mm -hmm. literally. Um, And we all had parts to play. But I would say he probably had the most weight Uh, on his shoulders. Yeah, for sure. to those of you listening who may not know who Kristen Smart is, I do feel it, it'd be remiss if I didn't tell the story of Kristen, because that's what this is all about. She was a Cal Poly student in the 90s, um, Took went to some parties one night and never made it home. Paul Flores was a suspect early on. Um, lots of missteps in the early part of the investigation by various law enforcement agencies and her disappearance wasn't really dove into for a couple weeks. Um, wonderful girl. And the early tales were that, well, she was at a party and she was drunk. And that was the narrative that was used for so long. And 26 years later, with good work and listening to the family and listening to people and talking to people and and. A, and to the largely to Chris in the podcast of in your own backyard or your own backyard, um, she was drugged. It's pretty is what basically jurors heard. And that was the assertion is. And so I think um, the tragedy of a part of the tragedy of her disappearance in death is how for so long people wrote it off as drunk college girl, which is wrong from the very beginning. You mm-hmm. never deserve to be murdered if you're drunk at a party. Mm-hmm. But the fact that she was all, most accounts is that she walked in sober and left not being able to walk on her right. own. And then as the evidence came out, Paul Flores had a history of of drugging women and, and raping them. So... Um, I just feel like we have to tell the story of Kristen when we're talking about the prosecution of the man who got convicted of her murder and a shout out to a beautiful young lady whose life was was cut far too short way too early. So as we talk about that, tell me about the day of the verdict, what what that felt like for you. The fatigue, the time, and then this is the day. Well, when we closed, um, did our closing arguments and then defense rested and then it went to the jurors, it was, that part is, I think, it, it was very stressful. We were then at that point, you know, packing 
um, finishing up items uh, with the court um, and starting to seal up uh, to, to go home. But we were, it was literally just heart heart beating constantly because you're just waiting for that call okay do they have the verdict yet and which way could it go and you're trying to distract yourself in any way um, because you're just so hyped up um, with okay what are they coming back to say we we invested this time the the effort um, the hours and the energy and put forth everything we could and how will it turn out and um it's it's nerve-wracking it really is and so that day i mean i walking into the courtroom you're just my heart was beating like okay Mm. this is it what what is it going to come down to after all this after everything and so many years of waiting um yeah, <laughs> it was. It's it's a, any verdict day. I I assume is a big day, but that was that was a big one. We're talking to Becky Kripe, uh, paralegal with the San Luis Obispo County District Attorney's Office. You're listening to KVEC News Talk nine twenty a.m. and ninety six point five FM. If you have a phone call or a question, you can text us or call eight zero five five four three eight eight three zero, and we'll be back after the break. Good afternoon, everyone. We're pushing 4.50 in the afternoon. You're listening to KVEC News Talk Radio, 920 AM and 96.5 FM. Jeanette Trumpeter filling in for a vacationing Dave Congleton today on Hometown Radio. And it's an honor to be a host in my hometown of Hometown Radio. Joined today by Becky Kripe, a paralegal with the San Luis Obispo County District Attorney's Office. Uh, Before the break, Becky, we were talking about Kristen Smart herself and um, the evidence against Paul Flores, you know, I mentioned because it's there have been numerous reports in the media and outside the actual what happened in the courtroom of date rape and accusations of that and drugging. A lot of what was told outside the courtroom never made it into into the courtroom. And still. There was a. A preponderance of evidence, thanks to the work of Chris Prevell, that that he was responsible for her murder. Where is he now? Paul Flores. Well, he's in prison. Um, I think North Kern County is my understanding. Yeah. So the last report. Mm-hmm. He has appealed the conviction. So and sp- it is on appeal. So speaking of appeal, we did get a question about was Paul Flores ever offered a plea deal? And the answer is, since this is still under appeal, that's not something you can talk about. Correct. Okay. So some questions cannot be answered yet um, as this moves its way through the through the court system. Do you feel um, that you were, took a part in San Luis Obispo County history a little bit? Yeah, for sure. We knew that although we were, it was a change of venue and went to Monterey, it, it was our case, our county's case, and that there would be um, other vested interests, um, you know, the people of San Luis Obispo County who have supported the Smarts, um, the Smart family all these years and have really just 
taken it as a part of um, their county history to see the case through if possible. So I think it was epic for uh, probably everyone in this county when it did materialize to a court case um, to see, okay, how is this going to play out after all these years? Because it was on their hearts, too, you know. So what happened? The the verdict comes in, um, sentencing happens. What happens to you when you got to pack up from that hotel room for the last time and come home? Was there a letdown? Did yeah. I mean, because you said you were on adrenaline. I can't imagine during that. I've had short periods of my career where, you know, you just don't <laughs> sleep. A, a, you don't fully fall to sleep because it's always on your mind because there's always something more you could be doing right now. Yes. So to go for that extent of time is pretty dramatic. What happened on the other side of it? Yeah, I mean, we were those days and, you know, if you're working 12 plus hours a day and you're on that adrenaline high when it was over and we had the press conference today, the con mm -hmm. the verdict was read and then we <clears throat> were released to go home and packed everything up. You're moving at 90, 100 miles an hour for four and a half months or so, what it was, and then it's over. It was like slightly hitting a brick wall um, because when you were there in Monterey, when we were there mm -hmm. in Monterey, everything down here, everything kept moving, everybody's lives. So you come back to things have changed mm. and you're trying to, um, I guess, catch up, so to speak. But you are on this down, uh, you know, you're trying to settle back down to where you were. And it was a very bizarre feeling. It, it took a little bit. I was given three weeks off immediately after. So I didn't actually come back to the office till mid-November. And I was thankful for that. I ended up taking off a little bit of time um, into the new year after that because I still felt really out of sorts because, yeah, we were just going so fast for so long and so intense mm -hmm. yeah. yes yeah beth rob who uh is the victim witness coordinator and worked a lot with advocate smart, yeah. advocate mm -hmm. sorry um <laughs> with the smart family said and she was going to join us today but she is under the weather so she couldn't join us at the last minute but she talked about just sort of like being bit out of a storm, you know, and like, whoa, yes. what just happened to me? And I could see it. I was coming and going, but I could see it in the stress levels. But boy, how about Chris Prevell? What? Oh, gosh, I, mean, I know. Hands off. Hands off like, to him. <laughs> he never showed the str he showed the frustration. I felt sometimes, you know, from opposing counsel, but that isn't any court case you get I yes. assume they both get irritated with each other, but I didn't feel the stress. He just, he was a, he, was he sort of the, the he, calmer of the <laughs> yeah, six-legged stool? He was a rock. JT, they, um, they were a good JT's team together. JT's a pretty cool cat <laughs> yeah. too, yeah. Yes, and very, um, a lot of comic relief there. Oh, and okay. so that helped, I think, ground him. And our, our families did come up at times, which I think helped. And we had um, good family support. Everybody's family was very supportive. And um, so he was able to internalize a lot of that. But, you know, it was nice because management down here and, and his colleagues down here in San Luis Obispo and up there, too, were very much concerned about um, the whole team's mental and um you know, psychological well-being, uh, knowing that it was going to be something that you'd have to adjust to after this was all done. And I really appreciate that because he had 
you know, it was an, an emotional ride for all of us, but especially him. And so I was, yeah, we were very much thankful that he was calm and collected, you know, most of the time. I mean, he did, there were times when we were having conversations about things that were happening and it wasn't all laughs and giggles, but it, he bounced back amazingly. And yeah. I, you know, he, he often thanked us because I think, you can't do it alone. No. He would not have been able to do everything. He had to have a team. And so it was all of us that kind of helped get us through, you know, together. We just clenched arms and, yeah. and did it. But yeah, amazing, amazing attorney. And yeah, just a it <laughs> big sounds, shoulders. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you guys were really a team. And that's a pretty magic choice to take some, you know, because if there had been a switch off midway, if somebody said, look, you know, my husband can't deal with it or my kids having, I got a bail. That's a tough switch to make in the middle of a trial. Oh, yeah, correct? for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And you, and you still all had business happening back here. That's the <laughs> thing that cracked me up is I could still get a hold of you know, yep. JT or somebody about a different thing yes. in San Luis Obispo County. Life went on. How about yes. walking into the office for the first time? Were there I people know. there you had never met? <laughs> oh, for sure. It was a trip. In fact, when we had our um, clerk's luncheon for Christmas, I before we started, I asked my supervisor, I'm like, hey, can we do like a meet and greet? Because I don't know some of the oh people in this gosh. room. And they said, oh, yeah, you haven't been here. And absolutely. It was, yeah, for us being removed from from that was something that I guess um, the military people on leave experience, although not to the same degree, obviously, and I'm not putting myself in their position at all, no. but the the association to being disconnected is the same because although we were talking to our families on the phone or, you know, right. on Skype, what have you, we were removed and that's, you know, so that was an association there that I wasn't familiar with because I'm not in the military, but it was likened, I think, to that um, from, you know, from what Dan was explaining too so so for you feel free to tell me no you're going too deep here but i'm gonna get a little you're married right and have kids yes. uh -huh. was there a was there a moment where your husband said yeah i've been doing this for five months you don't get to tell me anymore how to do that right yeah he had a lot of patience i have to shout out to all of our families because yes. they had a lot of patience and i you know when we were interviewed with ksby they you know they um richard gearhart had said hey would you guys do it again and i uh, beth and I are like, yes, for sure. We would love to. And I'm, if my husband's listening right now, he'd probably be like, what Ooh. is she saying? I would gladly do it again. But yeah, hats off to, yeah. to our families. Cause they really pinch hit it for us. And, um, yeah, he was a, he was a trooper and Oliver, you know, the wives on the other side, um, you know, Chris's wife and JT's wife. Yeah. The and, families. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A definite shout out to them. And <laughs> yes. I just want to throw a shout out to, to you and to Beth and Eloisa and Chris and JT and, uh, who am I missing? One sick, one stool. Cole. Cole. Clint. Clint. Cole, Clint, yes. Clint. You guys are amazing. <laughs> it was fun watching. No, it wasn't fun. It was, I was proud watching thank from you. the sidelines. So yeah, thank forever you. bonded. We're forever bonded from that experience. And I, they'll be lifelong friends for sure. Thank you so much thank for joining you. us today. It's a and pleasure. thanks for your service. And we'll be back after ABC News on KVEC News Talk, 920 AM and 96.5 FM. 
the 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kbec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111 911.